the Catholic Channel Sirius XM 129 presents Just Love with your host, Monsignor Kevin Sullivan, Executive Director of Catholic Charities of the Archdiocese of New York. Welcome to Just Love. This is our weekly conversation about what is going on in the world, and we look at the world through the perspective of our Catholic social teaching. We look at those things that are in the news. And when we look at the news, we kind of just don't look at them from the perspective of, oh, are they interesting stories? Uh, We look at them from the perspective of, wow, this is something going on in our world. And as Catholics, how do we look at those things? And again, from the perspective of our Christian faith, I mean, we believe deeply in the incarnation, that Jesus came and took on our humanity saved us in human form, truly human, still being divine, and that how our world is organized and how our world is ordered is very, very important. And does that foster the dignity of the human person? Does it foster families? Does it foster that the poor having a chance for the basic necessities of life How does it deal with the policies we have? How does it deal with stewarding God's creation, the dignity of work? How does that impact it? And so all of those things are what we bring to bear in terms of the um, of the world in which we uh, the world in which we live. And so um, that's what we're, we're, we're doing. Tom, how's your summer been going? My summer's been going very good, Monsignor. I, you know, I had a chance to do a little travel. I went down to Washington, D.C. Uh, for with Catholic Relief Services. I went to Atlanta with the Roundtable Association of Diocesan uh, Social Action Directors for their annual conference. So I got a little travel in, so it's going well. I'm, I'm so tell us, tell our listeners a little bit about the uh, conference in Atlanta. Sure, Monsignor. Well, the conference, in I would say, in Atlanta, it's, it's called the Social Action Summer Institute, and it's been going on, Monsignor, I'd say, probably 35 or 40 years, right. uh, social actions or directors around the country come together uh, to learn best practices, to kind of share what's going on in their dioceses, and to and to also learn about issues. And, and this social action summer institute was at Emory University, um, which is a beautiful campus if you've ever been. It's absolutely, I have to tell you, it's one of the prettiest campuses I've ever, I've oh. ever seen. And, uh, and, and, and we, we did it. Uh, the title of the conference was Out of the Shadows, Shining a Light on Human Trafficking. Um, and what we did was we kind of spent a couple of days, you know, learning about human trafficking, what human trafficking is, um, uh, and, and different things that dioceses are doing to combat it and different organizations are doing to combat it. Um, we also had the opportunity to go uh, to uh, Ebenezer Baptist Church uh, and to actually hear the pastor, uh, not the pastor, because the pastor is Senator Warnock. Mm-hmm. Um, but the, uh, I would say the assistant pastor gave us a little talk, gave us a tour of both of the new church, right. which is a newer building and the old church across the street that Martin Luther mm-hmm. King's father preached in. Uh, right. we saw Martin, we saw Martin Luther King's where the family was, and we got a tour of the civil rights museum. So really it was a, mm-hmm. it was a very good conference. Good. I'm glad that that is, uh, that, that, that was good. How many people showed up at it? Uh, uh, we had oh, about 60 social action directors. Right. And then on any given day, we had about 20 to 25 local folks that were coming. So okay. the numbers weren't as good as we were hoping. But, you know, oh. we're we're trying to 
come together as a board to figure out how we can encourage more more people to come next year. Well, we what, what do you usually get, and how many were you maybe hoping well, for? We were hoping for a hundred, Monsignor. Okay. Uh, you know, I mean, usually yes. So so this year, but I think you know, people were saying flights were expensive and other people were contacting us saying that they had already gone to other conferences. So we, we're going to kind of regroup and kind of think things through okay. and, and, and see if how, how we can get more people to come next. Okay. All right. So um, Tom, should we go to our first guest? I think that'd be great, Monsignor, of course. Okay. So our first guest is uh, Tony Talbot, who is the director of advocacy at the Human Rights Center, the co-founder and director of Abolition Ohio. And we're going to be speaking with him about the issues of human rights. And we're going to be speaking uh, on one of the themes of the conference the um, that Tom just went to, um, human trafficking. So, um, Tony Talbot, thank you for joining us on Just Love. Uh, thank you so much, Monsignor, for having me. Great. So, uh, listen, you know, we're all kind of doing this on Zoom. So we can see each other, but we're on the radio. So give our listeners a little bit of your background, how you you know came into the what you're currently doing, the work that you've been doing for you know a number of years now. So let them let them know a little bit about yourself. Well, thanks. Yeah, it's a long, long story, but I'm going to just hit the highlights. Um, I, I grew up in a small town uh, in Ohio. I uh, never really saw much of anything, but always wanted to go out and see the world. I joined, joined the military. Ah. I ended up serving 10 years in the Navy on ships stationed overseas, over in, uh, in Japan and the Philippines. And if you're familiar with the, the way the, the Navy works, um, you, you got to sea for a long time. We would go you know, on operations or whatever. And then on the way back, they would stop at different ports for liberty, is what okay. they call it, basically R&R. Right. When I was stopping in these little ports, um, as a young, like t- 21 years old, um, I saw a lot of things. And there was a lot of things that I'd really never seen before and hadn't really experienced before. Um, knowing the language I have now, I know what I was seeing was um, authoritarianism, uh, extreme malnutrition, um, uh, extreme poverty, forced labor, forced child labor, uh, prostitution, compelled prostitution, and uh, child sex trafficking. Um, and this was all happening in these places. The people were walking around. No one seemed to be doing anything at all about it. And you could tell a lot of people thought it was sort of wrong, but they just went along with it. Right. Um, fast forward after a few years, that and some other experiences, I um, went back to school, got my degree, got out of the Navy, went to graduate school, um, wanted to really become get in, involved in higher education and the, the academy. Um, ended up back in Ohio, never thought I would come back to Ohio, in Dayton, Ohio, at the University of Dayton, nice Catholic Marianist institution here, good private uh, school, um, teaching. And after teaching for a few years about all these horrible human rights abuses internationally, and I, I hate to say it wasn't until about 2009, I realized many of these human rights abuses, many of these human trafficking abuses, were happening here in the US, in Ohio, even in little Dayton, Ohio. Um, so we shifted and I shifted my focus from being an international politics scholar to focusing on local advocacy and local research around sex trafficking and labor trafficking um, in primarily in Southwest Ohio. Yeah. 
So that, that is a, a very, very um, interesting. So you, you joined the Navy, you saw the world, and you saw some of the things that weren't going on there that were really positive, a lot of negative stuff. And then um, you came back home and realized that you saw some of those same things in Southwest Ohio. So kind of full circle is what you, what you kind, of, uh, kind of did. Um, so let, let's go uh, to help our listeners a, a little bit is um, what is just, you know, definitionally or description wise, what is human trafficking? We hear the, hear the word, but what does that mean? Um, essentially, it's a form of exploitation. Um, human trafficking is when a person is compelled by force, fraud or coercion. So by violence or by threats or by lies and deceive somehow into providing sexual services or labor services for someone else's financial gain. Okay. Um, really simple. It's a situation where they get essentially turned into machines or animals in a lot of ways, um, dehumanized and uh, compelled to work for, for, for someone else in a situation they can't leave or don't think they can leave. Um, and for very little or no pay. Okay. And um, how big a problem is this? It's a pretty big problem. <laughs> it's a it's a really big problem, um, Monsignor. Um, our last three Holy Fathers have, have spoken at length about the problem of human trafficking. Um, the United Nations takes it very, very seriously. The U.S. federal government takes it very seriously. Um, every U.S. state now, all 50 states, have very strict laws against human trafficking because they realized it was happening locally. Um, the, no one knows for certain how big of a problem it is because it really goes under the radar, uh, so to speak. It's hard to tell if someone you're looking at is actually being paid a fair wage, is someone you're looking at actually doing something willingly, or are they being coerced in some way? But um, the few facts that we seem to know for sure are um, there's at least 24 or 25 million victims of human trafficking in the world, which is two to three times the number of, uh, of victims now that we had when uh, back in the 1800s when slavery was legal. So if you think about the transatlantic slave trade, that was about 11 million slaves in the world. Right. We've got many more than that now. The problem by the most recent data we have, the problem seems to be getting worse. Um, the rate of prevalence around the world is increasing um, over the last at least five years. Um, it seems to be a mix. A lot of people think about sex trafficking or you know, commercial sexual exploitation, child sex trafficking, et cetera, as being the biggest problem. But actually, it seems like labor trafficking or forced labor is a far larger problem globally than sex trafficking. Um, and it's happening. There's been uh, federal convictions in all 50 U.S. states uh, of human trafficking. Um, we've had multiple cases just in the last few years um, here in Ohio and in southwest Ohio in rural areas, suburban areas, and urban areas. So it's a major and probably growing problem of human exploitation. Now, you may have said this in the a little bit earlier, and I, I just didn't hear it. But the word trafficking, does that mean it kind of had a cross borders? Um, no, that's a really good point. A lot of people think that. And 
it doesn't help that sometimes the media and others confuse like human smuggling and human trafficking. Um, human smuggling is a consensual movement of someone across the border. Yeah. Human trafficking is that exploitation of one person by another for commercial sex or labor. Um, no movement is required at all for trafficking. And actually a majority of trafficking victims in the US have not crossed any international borders. They are US citizens or permanent residents and they were trafficked here in the US. Um, so we have children trafficked outside of their own, in their own homes by their parents. So they don't even leave their own home and they're trafficked. You know, again, I, 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 I accept exactly what you're, what you're saying. It certainly does make it confusing because trafficking, I mean, implies traffic and movement, right. but it doesn't have to. So, and again, maybe, maybe this is a little bit harder to get at. How much of the trafficking would be international across borders? Yeah, um, well, globally, that's that's a major problem. All right, but it seems the I don't have the facts and figures right in front right. of me, but the from reports I've read from the uh, International Labor Organization and some of the stuff from the U.S. State Department right. seem to indicate that most trafficking that takes place in the world takes place domestically. Right. So it's if someone's in Cambodia, they're trafficking a fellow Cambodian. Right. All right. And, I, and from what you've said, I assume that trafficking can be both of adults and children. Correct. Yes. Um, you remember I said when I was defining it, I mentioned force, fraud or coercion. Right. That's for adults. Right. Children don't have to show force, fraud or coercion. OK. Under international law, federal law. And almost all, I think all now, 50 U.S. states, minors cannot consent to commercial sex. So anyone under the age of 18 engaged in commercial sex is almost certainly a victim of human trafficking. And again, to you, you were very clear in laying this out, but I sometimes think that maybe in the kind of common understanding of some people, they, they automatically put sex before trafficking. What you're telling me is also includes labor. And if I heard you right earlier on, numbers wise, there'd be much more of the forced labor trafficking than the sexual trafficking. Yeah, that's that's very, very true, Monsignor. Um, and it makes sense when you think about it. Um, if, if you step back for just a second and sort of think about the logic of it, um, there is a large commercial sex market in the world. Right. That's where tra and trafficking victims get exploited to meet the demand there. But labor trafficking victims can work on cotton, chocolate, mining right. cobalt, assembling garments, sweatshops, agriculture, etc. Every possible product, every supply chain could potentially have a labor trafficking victim somewhere in it. Right. So, so, you know, makes sense. Fishing industry is a huge problem. That most people don't think about. And that's another one. Logically, you have a ship that's owned by uh, somebody from country A, let's say from, from China or from Thailand. Um, they go out to sea for months or years at a time with a crew that comes from a different country, let's say the Philippines. Um, they don't want to pay those people. They don't follow labor laws. They're in the international international waters on the high seas. If they're exploiting someone and someone complains, there have been cases of people literally being executed 
being shot, being thrown over the side uh, when they complain to keep the other workers in line. It's hidden. No one's going to see it and no one's going to enforce it because you're in the middle of the Indian Ocean you know, doing this. There's no there's no police officers out there. No yeah. UN blue helmets coming. We're speaking with Tony Talbot, the director of advocacy at the Human Rights Center and the co-founder of the director of Abolition Ohio. So, Tony, now let's come close to home where you've been focusing. So tell us about the situation in Ohio. Great. Um, you know, Ohio's like a lot of other states um, across the country, but um, what Ohio's is got a few factors that make it uh, make human trafficking a bigger problem, I think, here. Um, right. We have a pretty high population. We have a, a good mix of rural and urban areas. We have a lot of uh, income inequality within the state. Um, so a lot of divisions there, um, a lot of long-term poverty. Um, we're part of the Rust Belt. So a lot of the really good working class jobs over the years have dried up. Um, the auto industry has mostly moved out. So there's sort of pockets of long-term poverty and vulnerability. And geographically, we're located in a really good um, position to move things around or even people around. Um, the whole eastern half of the U.S., you know, less than a day's drive to every major population center in the eastern half of the United States, to most of the country's population. There's a lot of um, distribution warehouses here, shipping companies, et cetera, because of that. Um, and it's also, unfortunately, made a sort of a center for moving people and narcotics. Um, the opioid epidemic uh, was massive here in Ohio. We're sort of ground zero for that. Right. So... What we've seen in Ohio is, I guess, three things I'd really like to talk about uh, that people don't think about a lot. And uh, two are sex trafficking and one is labor trafficking um, and a, actually a mix of sex and labor trafficking. Uh, with the combination of the drugs, a substance use disorder and drug addiction, um, there's a lot of commercial sex and a lot of people are exploited or allow themselves to be lured into situations to meet drug habits or to supply other people's drug habits. So methamphetamine and fentanyl and opioids and commercial sex are really closely interconnected. So that's a problem we have here. Another problem we have is because of those large pockets of uh, poverty, especially rural poverty, we're seeing something called familial trafficking where children are actually being trafficked by their parents. Um, this could be, they would be selling sex with their sons and daughters in exchange for rent money or in exchange for drug money. Um, and we think this, uh, we're still doing some initial research, but the advocates I've spoken with and the survivors I've spoken with are indicating this is a major problem across Ohio in rural areas, but it seems also maybe in urban areas as well, more than we'd ever thought. Um, the third thing we see, and this is an epidemic across the country, is uh, what we call illicit massage businesses, um, erotic massage parlors. Um, this is where uh, women, mostly women from South Asia or Southeast Asia, primarily Chinese, Korean, Filipino, et cetera, uh, come into the US on visas for a certain amount of time. Uh, they could be student visas, tourist visas, whatever. Once here, they're trying to earn extra money. They get connected into these networks of Asian spas or erotic spas that are run, uh, over 80% are owned by Chinese. They're across the whole country. Um, people come into Flushing, Queens, 
or into East LA as major ports of entry, then they get into these circuits and they go across the whole country, going from massage parlor to massage parlor. Once they're there, they're compelled to, um, to provide commercial sexual services to make additional money. Um, in some cases, they're forced to work. They're not paid at all. So they're forced to give massages also for no money. So it's a place for sex trafficking and labor trafficking. We guess there's at least 14,000 of these spas across the U.S. We identified 300 in the state of Ohio alone. Um, wow. And it seems to be growing and spreading. Wow. All right. So, I mean, you have highlighted for our listeners the fact that there is um, there's a problem out there. What do we do about it? I've okay. There's an old adage, Monsignor, about um, you see people drowning in a river. We need people to jump in the river and pull them out. Um, but I've always been that person who's sort of drawn to go upstream and find out what's pushing the people into the river in the first place. Okay. For me, I I'm really focused on primary prevention, preventing harm before it happens in the first place. So that means we have to disrupt the system of trafficking. Um, trafficking is a human rights abuse. It's a crime. It's a sin. But it's also an illicit business, just like selling narcotics, just like selling arms, guns. So um, the illegal sale of human beings um, works on the principle of supply and demand. There's a demand for commercial sex. There's a demand for cheap labor and services. There's a lot of vulnerable people in the world who can be exploited by traffickers to meet that demand. To prevent this from happening, one of the key things we can do is reduce that demand. Um, and that looks different for sex and labor trafficking, but we're developing tactics or strategies for doing that in both cases. Um, for example, I talked about like, fishing and chocolate and cocoa, uh, cocoa, cotton, et cetera. What if we hold corporations to higher levels of accountability for their supply chains to ensure that their suppliers aren't providing them or selling them goods that were produced by child labor or forced labor? So how do you do that? How do you do that? Um, there's a, several different ways. There's been some ideas of multi-stakeholder initiatives where basically industry groups come together and police themselves. Um, another thing we do is, as consumers, we can, um, I'm not, I'm, I don't advocate boycotts in most cases. I don't think, I think that could be a negative uh, way to approach this. Instead, we inform, consumer, con inform consumers to make purchases, ethical and sustainable purchases that match their values. So we try to provide tools to consumers so that they can do a little bit of research. They're, you're going to buy a new pair of boots you do a little bit of research first. You don't just buy the cheapest boots. You find out, okay, where were these boots made? Who made them? Look at that company's website and see if they clearly say they have a transparent supply chain issue. They try to eliminate or reduce forced labor or child labor in their supply chain. Are they fair trade certified? Are they, uh, do they have some other form of certification? Um, if more and more people do that, consumers do that, it will reward the good companies. Um, and it'll make some of those less savory companies shift some of their practices to, to get some of that action as well. Um, shareholders can get involved as well. If you have investments, um, you can, if you own a share of a company, you have a vote in that company. Um, and there's 
really some great um, places that are doing that. Uh, the Interfaith Center for Corporate Responsibility, for example, uh, has, I think, $10 trillion. It's a ridiculous amount, more than I can count, for sure, uh, worth of asset assets. And they try to do some shareholder pressure and shareholder activism to make the, the they, they invest on behalf of, for example, Catholic organizations or other organizations, and they wanna make sure that the money that those organizations are investing matches the principles of those organizations. So they put pressure on companies to do the right thing when it comes to the environment and when it comes to social justice issues and their supply chains. Yeah. Um, those are some of the things we can do. Uh, most people care about these issues. They just are ignorant of them or they don't know how they can they can act. But I think it's educating yourself and just trying to figure out where do your purchases come from and put pressure on those companies for them to change as well. At, at the, I mean, to, to make this very, very kind of simplistic mm -hmm. is, is kind of the major, you know, driver why we have so much of this stuff, which is, you know, violating human rights, which is uh, abusive, et cetera, is because there's a profit in it? Of course. That sums it up perfectly, Monsignor. Um, it's, we've, the old way of doing business is to just, quote unquote, look at the business side of it. What's right. the bottom line? So how do you maximize your profit? So you minimize your costs and increase the, the, pr the, the price at which you sell something and you have, a, or the number, that you sell. And so you have a big gap there, excess value, profit. Right. Um, what we need to do is have some regulation and it could be self-regulation on the part of industries. It could be consumers putting pressure. It can be government regulation. I think it's gonna require all three of those to bring back into the equation some of those other costs of doing business, like the climate, like the environment, like human rights violations. Um, mm. A lot of it's reputational. Like, can you imagine a company like, let's say, Disney Corporation, uh, they want to make sure that there's no child labor in any of their supply chains because of the huge damage that would do to their reputation. Right. You know, you can't make toys or clothes for kids and have the little kids make the toys and clothes. So they do a really good job at keeping their supply chains as clean as they can to, to protect their reputation. It's just that sort of thing. We, we can definitely do this. We have the technology to do it. There just lacks the will. Um, and I think maybe that's where government comes in to regulate things a little bit, um, to ensure that companies abide by U.S. law when they're, even when they're operating overseas. I think that would be a clear, a clear thing that we could do. Um, and somehow, how do we shift the values of people to prioritize some things over just purely monetary profit. That's another key. So there's some okay. um, cultural values um, and social norms that we need to shift as well. Tony, you have been very generous with your time and you have enlightened me and I'm sure our listeners. Before I let you go, is there one final thing that you'd like our listeners to take away from uh, this this conversation. Yep. Um, yeah, getting back to the, yeah, thank you, Monsignor. I really appreciate the time here and this opportunity. Um, getting to the, back to the sex trafficking side, 
we need to reduce demand for commercial sex. Almost every person who purchases commercial sex is male. We need That means we need to get more men engaged in this. And we need to have men talking to their boys, their sons, other boys, telling them that it's not okay to purchase human beings for their own enjoyment. Right. Let's get more men engaged. Let's get them to teach the lessons down, you know, pass them lessons down the generations to change this. And I guess based upon that, um, some of the kind of conversation, the proposals about the decriminalization of commercial sex, you don't think would go in the right direction? There's, that, that's a good point. I don't believe in full decriminalization, but right. there's something called partial decriminalization, which decriminalizes the sale of sex, okay. but it still makes the purchase of sex okay. uh, a crime. Okay. That's a way to reduce demand, to help deter men from purchasing right. it, and to not re-victimize victims who are the, the, the providers. Tony Talbot, Director of Advocacy at the Human Rights Center and the co-founder of the uh, and Director of Abolition Ohio. Thank you so much for enlightening me and enlightening our listeners. And thank you very much for the work that you do to deal with this very, very difficult, awful, and abusive uh, issue. Thank you so much. Well, you're welcome, Monsignor. Peace. Just love. Just love God. Just love your neighbor. Just love yourself. And our world will be more just and it will be more compassionate. We'll be back in just a moment on the Catholic Channel, Sirius XM 129. Let's get back to Just Love and your host, Monsignor Kevin Sullivan. Talking baseball, Klazuski. Kevin. 
Campanella talking baseball. The man and Bobby Feller, the scooter, the barber, and the nuke. They knew them all from Boston to Dubuque, especially Willie, Mickey, and the Duke. Welcome back to Just Love. Just do it. Just love God. Just love your neighbor. Just love yourself. And our world will be more just and it will be more compassionate. You know, we just spoke with Tony Talbot about a huge issue of human trafficking. And I learned a lot that when the people in the field talk about it, they're not merely talking about those things that occur across international borders, but even the exploitation of people, whether it be for labor or commercial sex within a country. And, you know, that's a pretty big issue. You know, he talked about millions of people being exploited. I think he talked about maybe 24 million people being exploited. And sometimes we can say, boy, what can I do about that? That's just so big. I can't do anything about it. And that's why every week in our show, we talk about individually, just love. Just love God. Just love your neighbor. Just love yourself. And those are things that each of us can do day in and day out. They don't require great social policy changes. Would that we could get some of those changes, it'd be great. But even lacking that, you and I, we can love God better we can love one another better and we can love ourselves better. And that is critically important. And the more that people do that, the more there is justice, there more is compassion in the world. Because ultimately, I have so many opportunities each day to demonstrate that and to act or not act in accord with it. And so, yeah, we can get overwhelmed by the large issues. They really are overwhelming, but each of us can do our own part to try to make our world more just and be more compassionate. So, uh, Tom, let's go to our next guest. Our next guest is Professor Peter Dreyer, who is a distinguished professor of politics at Occidental College in Los Angeles. And I am delighted that he has joined us on Just Love. Professor Dreyer, thank you so much for joining us on Just Love. Ah, my pleasure to be here. Great. Um, so give our listeners a little bit of background. Tell, tell them who you are and how you got to be such a distinguished professor of politics. I think it's the gray hair, basically. Okay, well, that helps. Yeah. yeah. Uh, you know, I've... Uh... I've had a couple of careers in my life. I've been a community organizer. I've been a newspaper reporter. I was the deputy to the mayor of Boston in charge of housing for a while. And um, and I've been a college professor and a researcher. But through all that, um, all those different job changes, one thing that's remained constant is I've been a fanatic baseball fan. In fact, the word uh, fan comes from the word fanatic. And um, so it's redundant. And I grew up playing baseball. I played baseball in high school and college. And um, where'd you grow up? Where'd I've also been involved in politics. So the yeah. last two books I wrote were my effort to combine uh, an analysis of baseball and politics. Where'd you grow up? Which neck of the woods? Uh, New Jersey. 
Okay, thank God. So, I, so I may, can I assume you're not a Boston Red Sox fan? Um, when I lived in Boston, I uh, I went to Fenway Park, which I think is still the best ballpark to watch a baseball game. But I, um, you know, I had been a Brooklyn Dodger fan, and when they okay. moved to LA, I, you know, I sort of they abandoned me, and I abandoned them. Okay. But when I moved to Los Angeles, I uh, we reunited. Okay, so that's perfectly acceptable. That okay. is, what's not acceptable is to actually be a Boston Red Sox fan. Okay, that is, and but I agree with you that you know I've only been to Fenway Park once, but I got to admit it is a classic and just an incredible baseball park. Yeah, absolutely, the best place to watch a baseball game in the majors. Yeah, it is, and and even though. I'm a dyed-in-the-wool Yankee fan, which I'm even willing to admit this year. Um, it, it, I don't like I don't like the new Yankee Stadium. It's just too kind of fancy. It's like you know they built it for for not the ordinary folk. They built it for more elite folks. Well, when I was growing up, you know the Dodgers were the team for the working class. Yeah, and particularly with Jackie Robinson there. Uh, and um, particularly with Jews, Jews were big Dodger fans. Yeah. Um, and the Yankees were the uh, team for the uh, suburban elite. And I know you're not that, so there must be a you must have a different story somehow. Well, but but they may have been for the suburban elites, which is probably a little not not so good. But they were also for the ordinary Bronx people. So you know it was in there. I mean, and we always used to say we didn't quite understand why. They called it the World Series when it was always played in the Bronx. We thought it should have been called the, the Bronx Series. But um, anyway, great. but uh, but no, uh, the past few years have not been good for us. It's it's just right. not. And this year, ooh, not right. good at all. But right. uh, so anyway, let's go. Let's go go to your mixing of politics and um, and sports and and baseball. Um, I mean, I, you know, you wrote a book on baseball rebels, the the players, the people, the social movements that shook up the game and changed America. So um, give us a little bit of a of a kind of synopsis of that or the topics that are there and what intrigues you about that. OK, so, um, you know, I grew up, as uh, I mentioned before, cheering for Jackie Robinson. Uh, and he was a courageous, he was a great ball player, but he also was a courageous, inspirational human being. Um, and he really was um, a lightning rod for a lot of racism, but also for a lot of pride and hope uh, that America could be a better country. Right. Um, and throughout baseball history, starting in the uh, late 1800s, baseball has always played a role, uh, sometimes um, on the good side, sometimes on the not so good side, in the major movements that changed America for the better, the labor movement, uh, the civil rights movement, the women's rights movement, going back to the 1860s, uh, and even most recently, the gay rights movement. And uh, and in the book, uh, Baseball Rebels, we, we tell that story of some of the amazing, courageous ballplayers, sports writers, even a couple of owners, um, who took sides uh, on issues. I mean, there's a kind of a, a tradition 
that a lot of fans think that, you know, a ball player should be paid to play and shut up, basically. Mm-hmm. But um, uh, that's not that's not true. I mean, lots of ball players throughout American uh, baseball history spoke out against social injustice, again, beginning or or were part of those movements for social justice um, that are unsung heroes. And the book basically tells their story and tries to um, uh, lift them up. So, you know, Professor Dreyer, um, you've just educated me a whole lot because when I think of baseball and social justice, I think I almost exclusively focus on Jackie Robinson. That's kind of, you know, and, and then even though, you know, there were the Negro leagues and there were, and then there were the women's league and all of that. But I think that's what I think about, but you're telling me there's a lot more to the story than I'm aware of. Yeah. So let me give you a couple of examples. Let's start with the labor movement. Okay. Um, uh, Baseball you're not going to tell, always... tell me that Jimmy Hoffa was a great baseball player. <laughs> no, no. <laughs> okay, good. Uh, baseball has always been owned by the corporate elite, you know, big right. corporations who were in it to make money. And they always tried to exploit the players. Uh, back in the 1880s, they uh, a couple of owners said, you have to pay for your own uniforms. You have to pay for your own dry, you know, get your uniforms. Watch, we're not going to give you a per diem for food. Um, they would cut their salaries in the middle of the season. They didn't have contracts. If they had contracts, the contract said, um, had this thing called the reserve clause, which said that uh, we can trade you if you want, but you have no voice in it. And you're basically tied. It was a form of indentured servitude in their contract. You're tied to the team. In the 1880s, a guy named John Montgomery Ward, who was a lawyer, uh, went to Columbia University Law School, but he was also one of the great players of that era. He organized the first sports union in American history of the baseball players Ah. um, and uh, demanded a a better contract. And and when the owners wouldn't listen, um, they started their own league, a player-owned league called the Players League that competed with the National League and what was then called the American Association. Didn't last very long, but it put the owners on notice that they're not gonna take it anymore. Fast forward to the 1940s, a guy from New York, uh, uh, a guy named Danny Gardella was playing outfield for the Giants, uh, New York Giants. Um, And then he went to Mexico because they gave him, the Mexican leagues offered a lot of American players better salaries uh, and for the black players, less racism. So Danny Gardella went to Mexico for a year. Uh, He didn't like it that much. So he wanted to come back and play for the Giants. And the commissioner of baseball at the time, a guy named Happy Chandler, um, said, "Nope, we're we're not gonna we're gonna ban any player that moved to Mexico because you broke your contract, which was this uh, uh, this indentured service uh, clause called the the reserve clause." And Danny Gardella sued Major League Baseball. Ah, you know, and this was 30 years before Kurt Flood did the same thing, except Kurt Flood didn't win either. But then the other hero was this guy named Marvin Miller, who was the leader of the Baseball Players Union. Um, and you know, a lot of players were against unions at the time, but he convinced them they needed a union because they were making like, you know, Jackie Robinson never made in his top, he never made more than in today's dollars, $100,000 a year, right? Um, 
And so um, they organized the Major League Baseball Players Association in the 1960s. And Marvin Miller basically taught the players how to think like union members. And it's now probably the most, the strongest union in the country. And last year they organized 5,000 minor league players, which even Marvin Miller thought was impossible to do, right. but they did it. So, um, and baseball players would go on picket lines when other workers were on strike. Uh, they did that at the, um, at, the, uh, at the famous homestead strike outside Pittsburgh. Right. Uh, they've done it in other places. So uh, baseball has played an important role in lifting up the idea that collective action and collective bargaining is, uh, is something that workers need. Those are great stories. We're speaking yes. with Professor Peter Dreyer, who is the Dr. E.P. Clapp Distinguished Professor of Politics at Occidental College in Los Angeles. So let me take you outside of um, baseball for just a moment, because you said, you know, there's some people say, well, baseball players should just uh, shut up and just uh, play baseball. They shouldn't get involved in right. some of this 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 stuff. So give me your thoughts on right now, one of the big uh, areas is football and yeah. some of the stuff that has gone on in the past few years. How would you kind of relate that to some of the stuff that you've kind of written about with regard to baseball? Yeah, yeah. Well, without Jackie Robinson, there'd be no Colin Kaepernick. Okay. Without Jackie Robinson, there'd be no LeBron James speaking out for voting rights and for uh, against, uh, you know, against police brutality. Um, without Jackie Robinson, there wouldn't have been Billie Jean King, you know, speaking out for women's rights and for Title IX. And so baseball is the foundation. And Jackie Robinson was the first mass hero uh, of, who used his platform um, as a celebrity, as a sports star, to speak out against social injustice. And so you know, now you've got college players saying, you know, you can't, you know, it's, it's, it's great to give us scholarships to go to college, but you don't really treat us like students. You treat us like employees. So we want to have a voice in, you know, making some of the money that the colleges and universities are making in these Division I schools. Um, and again, when Colin Kaepernick uh, took the knee uh, against um, police brutality and against uh, racism in general, you know, all the owners said would, they wouldn't hire him after the um, after that. He was blacklisted. Um, but other players began, white and black players began to take knees as well. And then baseball did it and basketball did it right. um, and hockey did it even. So um, there's a growing awareness among ball players uh, of all sports um, that they have a platform and they should use it to speak out. Um, the quote I was referring to before was when um, one of the Fox News hosts said to LeBron James when he was speaking out against racism after um, uh, Mr. Floyd was killed uh, in Minneapolis, she told him, just shut up and dribble. <laughs> it's completely demeaning. And, yeah. um, and a lot of people thought that, but um, yeah. you know, there are a lot of players now that think that they have just like Jackie Robinson, who was very active in the civil rights movement. They have their citizens, they have the right to speak out and they're taking advantage of it. 
So let's go back to Jackie Robinson and everybody knows his name. But you also spoke, you also mentioned that kind of the owners were part of the corporate elite, the blah, 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 blah. So how do you, uh, I believe it was Walter O'Malley, was it? Yeah. How, how do you, I mean, so let me, let me phrase this in a product, in a, a way that you answer me back. I assume the, the ownership, Walter O'Malley did it because he thought it was good business. Well, the guy that recruited Jackie Robinson was Branch Rickey. Okay. Who was the owner and general manager of the, and um, yeah. uh, there's, there's been a lot of books written about him. Um, Branch Rickey was uh, a very religious man. Right. He, uh, when he was a, a, a college coach, he had a black player at Ohio Wesleyan who um, wasn't allowed to, when they were on the road, wasn't allowed to stay in the same hotels as his roommates. And some other teams refused to play against Ohio Wesleyan when um, this player was on the field. And so he, he felt a moral obligation to do something. But he also understood that a lot of Black people were moving. This is in the 50s, 40s and 50s. A lot of Black people were moving from the South to the North, to the big cities where the Major League teams played. Um, and he knew that they would be a bigger audience for Major League Baseball. Right. And so, you know, he had, you know, I, I would say a, a double uh, reason for wanting to attract a, a Black player. But even before, one of the things I write about in the book is that we associate the integrate the movement to integrate baseball with Branch Rickey and Jackie Robinson. Branch Rickey being sort of the shrewd owner strategist and Jackie right. Robinson being the amazing athlete with uh, a conscience and uh, steel integrity. But the movement to integrate baseball began in the 1930s um, with uh, the labor movement and civil rights groups demanding that they um, that they let blacks into the into the major leagues, and two of the most prominent people who were not well known um, were a guy named uh, Wendell Smith, who was a sports writer for the Pittsburgh Courier, um, uh, a black paper, and Lester Rodney, who was the sports editor. This will sound weird of the communist newspaper, the Daily Worker, which back in the 30s and 40s had a pretty big readership, particularly in New York, and they and about 30 other black and a handful of white sports writers would write stories about the Negro Leagues and say, you know, Josh Gibson's as good as any player or Satchel Page is as good as any pitcher in the white leagues. And they would lift up the stories about these players. And uh, and they picketed Yankee Stadium. They picketed Ebbets Field. They picketed Wrigley Field to basically draw public attention to the integration of to the need for integration. And it had it paid off. And so Jackie Robinson, I'll finish with this. Jackie Robinson understood that while he was a talented ball player, he owed his breakthrough to this protest movement. And he paid back that debt many times through his own involvement in the civil rights movement in the 60s. Right. Professor Peter Dreyer, thank you so much. I learned a whole lot and I know our listeners did. Thank you so much for uh, being with us, giving us the time. And thanks for the work you've done to make a lot of people smarter through your books. Thanks for being with us. My pleasure. We'll take a break. Just do it. Just love God. Just love your neighbor. Just love yourself. And our world will be more just and it will be more compassionate. We'll be back in just a moment on the Catholic Channel, Sirius XM 129.
Just do it. Just love. Just check out Monsignor Kevin Sullivan, who's here right now. Take it away, Monsignor. Welcome back to Just Love. Just do it. Just love God. Just love your neighbor. Just love yourself. And our world will be more just and it will be more compassionate. Our weekly conversation about what's going on in the world. We look today at a couple of different topics, which kind of were very diverse. Uh, one maybe might say it wasn't too serious, sports, baseball, except that what I think our conversation indicated is that it is those areas in which there is kind of widespread public appeal in which some social justice issues can be raised to the surface and to make, as we say, to make our world more just um, than they were before. And obviously, the issue of racism, discrimination in baseball and in other sports is an important topic. And so I'm glad that Professor Dreyer joined us with that, you know, and um, the issue of, of um Key of you know trafficking is good, and I I think on our show next week we're going to kind of continue that conversation a little bit and talk a little bit more about uh, the commercial sex exploitation of children in particular. So you know we got a general idea from uh, from this week from our conversation this week, and um, you know Tony Talbot gave us a broad view. Next week, uh, with Brooke Ruffin, we're going to get a little bit more specific on those type of things. But anyway, I hope that your summer is going well and that you get a little opportunity to relax, a little bit of opportunity to take a break, and hope you always tune in to us on Just Love. So just love God, just love your neighbor, just love yourself, and our world will be more just and it will be more compassionate. This is our weekly conversation about the church in the world, our social teaching on the Catholic Channel, Sirius XM 129. You're listening to the Catholic Channel, Sirius XM 129. 